we want to continue this series that we've been doing uh, in Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, up to this point, uh, the writer of Hebrews is trying to show us how that Jesus is, uh, is the perfect fulfillment of everything that God had promised, that Jesus uh, was better than the Old Testament priest. Uh, he did so by showing us how Melchizedek was superior to those priests, and then Jesus was superior to Melchizedek. And today we pick up this, um, this passage where it's going to begin to describe to us uh, what Jesus did for us and how that he was the perfect high priest and that his priesthood remains forever. Um, he's also going to show us that the covenant that Jesus uh, established with us is a better covenant than the Old Testament covenant. The Old Testament covenant was temporary in nature. It was a snapshot or a picture of what was to come, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And so what he wants to do is to walk us through how that Jesus has become something better. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 7, the passage that Brandon just read, um, he starts off talking about an oath, and that ties back into what we talked about last week, where he was talking about Jesus being like Melchizedek. He was a, a priest, and Jesus gives us access to God. And he talked about the fact uh, earlier in Hebrews that, that priests didn't just appoint themselves. It wasn't just a, a guy that woke up one day and says, I think I'll be a high priest. But these guys were born into a, a family, uh, into the lineage of, uh, of Levi, and those guys uh, served in that order of the uh, um, Aaron's uh, lineage, and so they became the priest. But Jesus came, and he wasn't a part of that tribe. He wasn't a part of the tribe of Levi. He was a part of the tribe of Judah. And so Jesus came, and God says to him, you, you didn't get there by your, your birth, by your lineage, but you got there because I've appointed you. And that's what this oath is about, where God spoke and, and said that Jesus was going to be our priest forever. And so the first few verses that, that Brandon read for us is a, a passage about the fact that it was by this oath that, that Jesus was appointed to be our high priest. And he's going to show the distinction between Jesus' priesthood and the priesthood of those in the Old Testament. And so Jesus uh, is, is said by the Father to be a priest forever. And then let's pick up in verse 22 where it says, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, the writer of Hebrews is going to continually come back to this idea that the Old Testament was, a, that there was a, a covenant established with Abraham in the Old Testament. Remember when God appeared to Abraham and he said to Abraham, I want you to leave your father's country and I want you to go to a land that I'm preparing for you, a land that, uh, that I'm promising you. And, and your descendants, Abraham, will be as numerous as the sand of the sea or the stars of the sky. Now, Abraham... And Sarah, at that point, were unable to have children. And it was a while before they were able to conceive. But Abraham gives birth uh, to, or his wife gives birth, I guess is a better way to say it. You ladies might take offense to that. Uh, but they give birth to their son, Abraham, and, uh, and then Isaac, and, and then Jacob. And Jacob has the 12 sons that are going to become the, the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and there's an Old Testament covenant that tells them how to worship the Lord and, and how to follow the Lord. And that old covenant, everything about it, guys, points forward to Jesus. It points forward to the sacrifice that Jesus is going to offer on our behalf so that we can draw near to God. And that's where we dropped off last week was this, this idea that, that because of what Jesus has done, we can draw near to God. And Jesus guarantees that by what he's done uh, through his life, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so Jesus guarantees us that this covenant that he is coming to establish is a, a greater covenant. Just like Melchizedek was greater than the Old Testament priest, Jesus was greater than Melchizedek. The covenant that Jesus comes to institute is better than the covenant that was given to Abraham. 
And he talks about now how that Jesus is distinguished between, uh, distinguished from the priest of the Old Testament. Look with me in verse 23. He says the former priest. He's talking about all those priests who came before our new high priest, Jesus. He says the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So he doesn't mean that we had like 500 at a time. That's not what he's trying to say, many in number, like there was many priests. And it did take a lot of priests to do the work of the sacrificing and the work of representing the people before God. But he's saying that these priests lived for a while and then they died and had to be replaced. Their, their terms were, were limited because of death. And that's what he's going to say. But he's saying Jesus is not like that because Jesus will never die. He has been resurrected and he lives forever. So whereas you might have a, a, a priest that understood the people and represented the people well and was compassionate and then he would die and another one would take his place and maybe that priest wasn't quite as good as the last one. And so you have good priest, bad priest, you know, like you got a good cop, bad cop kind of thing. But you would have these priests and, and, and the priesthood would fluctuate with the leadership that would come. But he's saying with Jesus it's going to be permanent. Jesus came and he lived, he died, but he was resurrected. And now he lives forever and he serves as our high priest forever. So the former priest had to be replaced because they died. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He lives forever. And consequently, as a result of this, he is able to save to the uttermost. In other words, he's able to save completely at all times those who draw near to God through him again that's where we left off last week was in at the in chapter 7 um, verse uh, what is it verse 19 where he says we draw near to God through Christ here he's going back to that phrase again and saying because Jesus continues forever he is able to save forever to the uttermost at all times completely those who draw near to God through him so God made a covenant. God made a promise. Jesus, you're going to be a priest forever. And Jesus is, is guaranteed that because of the, the promise of God. And then Jesus can guarantee to us that he is going to be our high priest forever if we put our faith in God. And because Jesus holds this priesthood permanently and he continues forever, he is able to save us to the uttermost, all those who will draw near to God through him. Now let's stop for just a minute and remember the context of Hebrews. Hebrews is, is written to a group of people who have come to faith in Christ. They've lived long enough with God to fall flat on their face a few times. And now they're left with this idea that Jesus covered all of our past sins. But what do we do about these sins today? What do we do about what I just did wrong yesterday? And their Jewish friends were saying, well, you need to come back to the temple. You need to offer another sacrifice. You need to show God that you were really sorry, that you were repentant. And, 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 and while we don't do that today, you know, we don't have a temple that we run to and, and offer animal sacrifices. What we tend to do today is we sin and we fall short, and then we want to beat ourselves up. We want to feel guilty. We, not that we want to feel guilty, but we feel guilty and we feel shame. And we beat ourselves up for a while about the, the missed opportunities or the sin that we fell back into and, and we got to answer the same question that these Jews were trying to answer is that what do we do with today's sin? What, what do we do with that? And what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say here is that what Jesus did on the cross was absolutely enough. Not only to cover your past sins, but your present sins. And even those sins that you will commit between now and the time you die, 
and you go see Jesus. He's trying to say to us, guys, that you are secure in Christ. He is your once and and forever priest who will represent you before the Lord. And, And the blood that he shed back there on Calvary is enough blood to cover your sins today. You say, well, why is that such a big deal? Here's why it's a big deal. If what Jesus shed on Calvary is not enough to cover your sins today and tomorrow and every other day in the future, then you're in trouble because he's not going to shed another drop of blood. He shed all the blood that he's going to shed. And if that's not enough to cover all of our sins, then every one of us is in trouble. Now, does that just give me a license to run off into sin? Absolutely not. Paul would say in his letter, if, 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 if where sin abounds, grace does much more abound, does that mean I can just go sin and, and the more I sin, the more I show how great God's grace is? Paul says, that's a warped way of thinking. No, that's not at all what Scripture says. The grace of God ought to change us. It ought to stir in us this love and this devotion for God that causes us to want to be pleasing to God. And even though we will fail and we will have to come back before God and confess our sins, we need to understand, this is what he's saying, that he is able to save to the uttermost those of us who have a heart set on drawing near to God through Christ. This idea of drawing near to God through Christ reminds me of the, of the picture of the, the Jews who he would be writing to, their, their ancestors who reached the edge of the Jordan River. Remember when God was leading them out of Egypt and he brought them right to the edge of the river and says, here's the land. And the spies went in and spied out the land and saw it and came back with all the fruit. And said, Man, the fruit is incredible. It's everything that God has described that it would be. There's only one problem. The guys in the land are giants and we are like grasshoppers in their sight. And the people turned back and said, we can't go. Joshua brings them back to the edge of that promised land 40 years later. And this time they stand there and they said, we're not turning back. Our parents turned back and they died in the wilderness. We are going forward. And God opened up the river and let them cross on dry ground. He let them cross through the world. It was flood stage. And God opened up the river and he made a way. And we get that same imagery here of Jesus coming. And the the scripture says that Jesus made a way through his flesh for us to come into the presence of God and to draw near. That's the way that we are saved to the uttermost part. For those who draw near to God through him. Please understand salvation is not just for the world. It's for those who humble themselves and come through Christ. Those who find their way to God through what Christ did. And so he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's Jesus who is before the Father pleading our case. It's Jesus who's before the Father asking God to give us the strength to battle that temptation, give us the strength to stand firm, to give us the strength and the wisdom to represent him well in our world. It's Jesus who's before the Father saying, look, today an opportunity is coming before this one and, and, and he can represent you well, but God, he's going to need your strength. He's going to need your wisdom. He's going to need your courage. It's Jesus that's interceding for us in the presence of the Lord. And so in that process, God is at work and he's working through Jesus as Jesus lives to make intercession for us. And then he says this in verse 26, for it was indeed fitting It was appropriate under the circumstances. Knowing our needs and knowing what Jesus was able to do, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest. Here we are. Many high priests have come before Jesus. But the writer of Hebrews says it was perfectly fitting 
that we have a high priest like Jesus. So what was Jesus like? What qualified Jesus to be our high priest? What made him uh, able to, to stand in our place and represent us before God? He's about to tell us here. He says, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Our high priest is holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. Separated from sinners. And exalted above the heavens. This is what qualified Jesus to be our high priest. Jesus is holy. He is set apart to do the Father's will. He's, he's called by God. He's appointed by God to be our high priest. And Jesus is, is, is holy, but he's also innocent. He, he never sinned. He's unstained. Uh, the, the sin of this world has not stained him. He's separated from sinners. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus kept this great big distance from sinners. It means that he was distinct from sinners. There was something different about Jesus than every sinner that's ever walked the face of this earth. We need that kind of a high priest, the writer of Hebrews is saying. Why? Because he's holy, but we are unholy. He is innocent, but we Man, we are guilty. He is unstained. But we are covered with guilt and shame and sin. It was fitting that we have a high priest who was distinct from us, different from us, that could stand in our place because none of us could afford to stand before God in our sin and in our stain and in our guilt. We couldn't. So we needed someone different, distinct from us, who could stand and represent us before God. So it's fitting, he says, that we have this kind of high priest who is holy and innocent and unstained, who is distinct from sinners, and by the hand of God has been exalted above the heavens. Jesus, he says, has no need, like all the other priests, to offer uh, these sacrifices daily, First for his own sin and then for the sins of the people. That's what the high priests of that day had to do. They, they offered sacrifices day in and day out. When they went before the Lord to represent the people, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves first because they too were impure. And so a sacrifice had to be offered for them to cleanse them and to cover them. And then they could go and, and sacrifice for the people on behalf of the people before God. But he says Jesus is not like that. Jesus was different. He doesn't have a need to do that because he did it once and for all when he offered up himself. So they repeated the sacrifice daily, many times a day. Jesus did it once. They offered the blood of bulls and goats, as we'll see in chapter 9. But Jesus offered his own blood before the Father. They provided a snapshot. Jesus provided reality. They gave us a a glimpse but Jesus gave us the, 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 the fulfillment of, of everything that God had required. And then he says another thing that distinguished Jesus from the other high priest was that the law of the Old Testament appointed men in their weakness. In other words, these priests that, that were called to serve were just like us. They lived and they failed and they had weaknesses. And yet they were the ones that God appointed to represent these people to God. These these men were appointed in their weakness as high priest. 
But the word of the oath, the promise of God, the Son of God who came, which was after the law, appointed a Son who has been made perfect forever. Say, what's what's he trying to say in today's passage? He's trying to show us how that Jesus finished the deal. Jesus did everything that we needed to be done. That, that we fall short, but Jesus does not. The high priests were in their weakness, but Jesus was in his full strength. That we can't ever save ourselves, but that Jesus did that for us. That we will never, ever be able to be qualified to stand before God on our own. But Jesus qualifies us to stand there in his presence, covered in his righteousness. That there's nothing that you and I can do to draw near to God. But Jesus has done everything that needs to be done so that we can be near to God. For us to attempt, as these Jews of that day were trying to do, to, to, to add to what Jesus had done demonstrates that we believe that what Jesus did was not enough. So let's bring this home to where we live. If you believe that what you need in order to draw near to God is to say a prayer, to invite Christ into your heart, and to try really, 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 really hard to be this person, then what you're saying is what Jesus did was was not enough, that you have to add to that. And that's a dangerous place to be. It's not grace plus anything else. It's just the pure grace of God. Now, that grace of God changes us into the men and women that God wants us to be. It changes us into people who want to serve the Lord, but we don't serve God in order to get his grace. We serve God because that grace has already been poured out on us. And that is such a freeing thing. And I know we've talked about this on several different occasions as we've gone through this passage. But but there is such freedom when you understand that, that all the grace that you need has already been poured out on you. All the grace that you need, God has already bestowed upon you. So you don't have to serve to get grace. You don't have to serve to get salvation. You serve because you've been given grace and you've been given salvation. So the heart that we serve out of now is a heart full of joy and gratitude and thankfulness for what God's done. And because he's done all of that, I I just want to give myself fully to him. I want to be an instrument in his hand to be that kind of a blessing to other people. And so it changes our whole motivation for why we do what we do. Jesus didn't come to save the worthy. He came to save those that that are unworthy. He didn't come to to, to be a doctor for the the folks that are well, but Jesus came to be a a, a physician for those who are still hurting and still uh, um, not whole. The former priests that the writer of Hebrews talks about here, they were kind of like the commercial that was advertising the big event. But once the big event comes, you don't need the commercial. You you don't see Super Bowl commercials running after the Super Bowl. You you know, if you you go to the movies, they're going to show you 25 movie trailers before your big event gets there, right? They're going to tell you about everything that's coming up in the next year, year and a half. And, 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 and these, these former priests were kind of like the movie trailer that was pr- promoting the full-length film. But once you've seen the film, who goes back and watches the trailer? He's trying to show them that, that these priests were pointing forward to Christ, but we've got Christ. So we don't need the sacrificial system anymore. Why? Because Christ was a sacrifice. We don't need to continually offer these animal sacrifices again and again and again. Why? Because the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus has been offered. The Old Testament priests were the snapshot, but Jesus was the fulfillment. 
They were temporary, he says. But Jesus is forever. And so Jesus is now the guarantor of a better covenant, a covenant that we know by the word of God and the promise of God will last forever. So that's what this passage is trying to say to us. But there's something else here that that if we're not super careful, I think we will miss. I know I've missed it for years. This picture that he's painting of Jesus being holy, innocent, unstained, distinct from sinners... It's, it's an image, guys, that we, we need to grab a hold of. This, this will change how you see life and how you do life. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the high priests of that day, thought that to be holy meant you had to be separated from all these people. So you've got the story of the Good Samaritan, who's beaten and left dead on the side of the road, they thought. And what did the priests and the Levites do? crossed by on the other side. We, we can't get near death. We can't get near that. You've you got the, the, the people of that day that are so confused when Jesus hangs out with sinners. Because doesn't that make Jesus dirty? Doesn't that make Jesus defiled? The most interesting thing in this passage that's grabbed my heart as I've prepared for this message is the fact that Jesus was holy He was innocent, he was unstained, he was distinct from sinners, and yet where did he live? Right in the middle of them. Who did he rub shoulders with every single day? Sinners. Who was it that was drawn to Jesus? Who was it that that came and fell at his feet? Who was it that, 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 that just felt so at home with Jesus? Sinners. You see, holiness... Does, does not separate us from sinners. Like we can't be around them. Like how dare one of them come in our building? How dare one of them come and sit beside me? How dare me go and hang out and have lunch with one of them? But that's what the Pharisees of that day thought. That's why they were so appalled every time they saw Jesus with sinners. But I want you to notice where Jesus spent his time. Mark chapter 7. We're going to look at a few verses. You may want to just jot these down, and you can look at them again later. But I want you to see the distinction between Jesus and the Pharisees of that day. Jesus and the religious elite of that day. Jesus and those who were trying to be holy. Jesus described them as as polished cups on the outside filled with dirt on the inside. He, He described them as whitewashed tombs that were clearly marked as the place of a dead person, but full of dead. And bones. That's not the holiness that we're called to. We are called to imitate Christ. You and I are called to be holy, to to, to live innocent lives if we can, to, to, to be people that are unstained by this world, to be distinct. Get this. We are called to be distinct from the world. They ought to be able to look at your life and go, there's something different about this man, about this woman. Should be distinct but not distant. Look at what Jesus did. Mark chapter 7, verse 14. Let me grab that. Mark chapter 7, verse 14. Jesus called the people to himself again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand this. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him 
uh, can make him or can defile him. Now, he's talking about food here, but this is also about the people of that day. The things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he entered the house and he left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Since if it enters not into his heart, but into his stomach, and then it's expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, whatever comes out of a person is what defiles him. For it's not from within, uh, out of the heart, uh, for from, I'm sorry, maybe I got, for from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft and murder and adultery, coveting and wickedness, deceit and sensuality, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they defile a person. Here Jesus is talking. These Pharisees are having a hard time because they they think Jesus and them are are, going to eat unclean foods. And Jesus says, guys, listen, it's not the stuff out there that makes you defiled. It's the stuff in here that defiles us. It's not what you put into your mouth. It's not what you touch with your hands. It's what's residing deep in your heart. That makes you defiled before God. How could Jesus touch sinners and not be unclean? The Old Testament customs of that day said if a clean person touches somebody that's unclean, then they become unclean. But in the New Testament, just the opposite is true. That which was perfectly clean, Jesus, touched that which was disgustingly dirty and sinful. And what was dirty and sinful was declared clean. It's a new covenant. It's a new way. It's a different kind of holiness than anybody in the Old Testament had ever dreamed of. Jesus left the people going, wait a minute. This is a whole new way of seeing life. You see, for for us, it's tempting to say, well, I want to be holy. So I've got to separate myself from all my lost friends. I want to be holy, so I'm not even going to go over there to that party. I'm not even going to go into that scene. I'm not going to stand around when people are, 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 are saying things that, that are offensive to me. And it's easy as a Christian to isolate yourself to just other believers and to feel really good about yourself and think, well, I'm holy. I, I, there's no sin anywhere around me. But Jesus would never say that about himself. Pharisees would. The scribes would. Sadducees would. The priest of that day would. They would wear their long flowing robes and just dare somebody sinful to get close to them. But not Jesus. It's a different kind of holiness. Jesus came and he said, it's not that stuff out there, guys, that's going to defile you. It's what's in your heart. Matthew chapter 20. Another example of Jesus not being afraid of what's out there. Matthew 20, verses 29 to 34. It says, As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. But the crowd rebuked them. You're you're sinful. That's why you're blind. Don't you bother the, the, the teacher. Don't you bother the Messiah. They told him to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Jesus wasn't afraid of getting dirty. 
He wasn't afraid that, that somehow he would be defiled if he touched somebody that was sick or touched somebody that was sinful or touched somebody that in the eyes of the world was disgusting. Jesus knew it wasn't what you touch with your hands that, that made you undefiled. It was what was in your heart. Mark chapter 1, Jesus is going to do something that leaves the crowd just breathless. Chapter, Mark chapter 1, verse 40 and 42, it says the leper came to him. Remember those lepers, guys, that were required to live outside the city? That any time they were to come near a person, they had to scream, unclean, unclean, so that everybody could scatter and nobody would catch their disease. This leper came to Jesus. And they implored Jesus, begged Jesus, and kneeling, said to Jesus, If you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand. And he did something that nobody had done for that man in a long, long time. He touched him. And he said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he was made clean. Holiness and holy people don't isolate themselves from those with needs. Don't isolate themselves with those with disease. Don't isolate themselves with those who are disgusting. Holy people get in the mix of an unholy world and take Jesus to them. Jesus touched the leper. He had pity upon him. Mark chapter 7, just a few chapters over. There's a man that's deaf. He says that Jesus, in verse 32, chapter 7, verse 32, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, Jesus puts fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touches his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephrathath, And that is to be opened. And his ears were open. And his tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. This is the Jesus that we're called to imitate. Who's not afraid of sinners. Who's not afraid of people that are are sick or disgusting. But is right there in their midst with them. Representing God to them. Luke chapter 7. Jesus is meeting with folks that that the religious elite of that day would never meet with. That holy people would never be seen around. And yet we look up and that's exactly where Jesus is. In, 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 uh, In Luke chapter 7, verses 33 and following. He says in verse 33, Where John the Baptist came eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say he's got a demon. But the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all of her children. The proof is in the pudding, Jesus says. You accuse me of being a friend of sinners. You you think that's a label that I'm going to somehow try to shed. Jesus says, I'm going to embrace that label because that's exactly who I am. I'm a friend of sinners. And what makes this so amazing, guys, is this, that Jesus was holy. He was innocent. He was unstained. 
And yet he did this. Why are we so afraid of our lost world? Why are we so afraid to hang out with people who, whose morals may not measure up to ours? Who, who may only speak the name of God when they do so in, in a profane way? Those are the people that Jesus would find himself in the midst of every single day. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious elite of that day blasted him for that. And Jesus says, that's who I came for. That's who I came to save. Keep reading in in Luke chapter 7. And you see Jesus showing up at the home of a what? Of a Pharisee. Here we go. Showdown 101. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. So he went into the Pharisee's house. He reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city... That's not a good title, by the way. She was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, a place she, by the way, never would have been invited, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Women of the night in that day would wear a little flask of ointment on a necklace to cover up their body odor and to make them a little more appealing to the men that they work for. She was leaving that life and she didn't need that ointment any longer. As she breaks the, the, vase, the, the vase and, and, and pours out the oil, she's saying, I'm not going back. I'm not going back. She brings this alabaster flask of ointment. Standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she begins to wet his feet with her tears, to wipe them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, if he was who he said he is, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. Why was that such a big deal? Because in their mind they equated distance with holiness. Somebody holy would never let a woman like that touch them. Somebody that was holy would never even associate with a woman like that because you know what? It might give me a bad reputation. What are they going to say in synagogue next week? What are they going to say in temple? I saw him hanging out with one of them. And Jesus is like, you just don't get it. You just don't get it. That's who I came to save. She knows that she needs a savior. The only difference between her and you is that you haven't figured it out yet. So look what he says. What sort of woman, if he knew what sort of woman this was and who it was that was touching him, I'd never let her touch me. She's a sinner. So Jesus answered him. said, Simon, I've got something to say to you. Simon says, all right, say it. Verse 41, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other just 50. When neither could pay, he canceled the debt of both. And, and now which one of them will love him more? 
Simon said, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Well, that's obvious. (laughs) I've been talking about her. I've been ridiculing her. I've been been pointing her out and all of her problems and all of her faults and how much she's so much less than me. Yeah, I see her. He says, I entered your house, Simon, and you gave me no water for my feet. She wet my feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, the, the proper greeting in that day. But from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, a sign of honor. But man, she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, they're forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those at the table who were with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go back with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Our high priest, guys, is holy. He is innocent, unstained, distinct, but not distant from sinners. And we are called to be like him. Do not be afraid that if you minister to somebody who is unholy, that it's going to make you unholy. Do not be afraid that, that if God puts somebody before you that has a need and that need is to minister to somebody who is less than ideal, that somehow that's going to make you less than ideal. We were taught growing up that you're known by your friends that you hang out with. That may be good advice to tell a teenager to keep them out of the wrong crowd. But I don't know that it's biblical. Guys, listen, Jesus came to save sinners. And true holiness gets right out there with them. Lives a distinct life, but not a distant life from them. We rub shoulders with them. We serve alongside of them. And in the process, we pray that they can see the difference that Jesus has made in us. You don't need the long flowing robes. You don't need a cross this big around your neck. You just need to love them the way Jesus loved them. Minister to them in the midst of their crisis, in the midst of their needs. Take them lunch when they can't afford it. Give them what they need most. And pray that they can see in you a Savior who is distinct, but not distant. We wonder why our world is angry and disappointed with the church. And I think part of that resides at our doorstep. Because for too long we've said, I'm holy, stay away. Don't, don't, don't tell that joke. Don't say that thing. Don't. 
instead of just living with them and loving them in their sin and watching Jesus change their hearts. If Jesus did it and was still holy, if Jesus did it and was still innocent, if Jesus did it and remained unstained by this world, so can we. And so should we. And that's the gospel. So when you read these descriptions of who your high priest is, you've got to ask yourself, do I look more like him or more like the Pharisees? Am I trying to prove my holiness by isolating myself from everything that's unholy and every person that's unholy? Or am I just demonstrating true holiness by living in their midst, but living a distinct life in their midst? That's what we're called to do. And that's what struck me most about this passage is that we have a high priest who did not stay away but he came right here in the mix and he demonstrated for us what real holiness looks like. And because of that, he's a perfect fit to be my high priest and to be your high priest. And because of that, he can save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Christ. Don't be a Pharisee. Be like Jesus. And let the world see the distinction that Jesus has made in you and that he can make in them. And watch what God does as you live that kind of life. Let's pray.